know, nobody wants to um, take responsibility, right? And it's not like I'm saying, as a family member, you're responsible for, because I'm saying the exact opposite. I'm saying you're responsible for yourself and your own actions. And it's through looking at that, through looking at yourself and how you can start to change that you're really gonna have the greatest impact on your loved one and their recovery. You're listening to The Recovered Life Show, the show that helps people in recovery live their best recovered lives. And here is your host, Damon Frank. Welcome back to The Recovered Life Show. I am joined again today by Dr. K.J. Foster. She is the founder of Fostering Resilience. How are you doing today, Dr. K.J.? I'm doing well, thank you. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm so glad to have you on. This episode's going to be really interesting. We're talking about the role of your family in recovery, and you are the expert on that, have written books and have a whole practice about the family, and we're hoping you can give us a little bit of guidance about what is the family's role in recovery. I will, I will do my best. The family's role is a significant role. And so that's the number one thing to understand is that there, um, you can have a huge influence on your loved one's recovery. A lot of people that I meet that I work with whose loved ones are in treatment, they come into treatment and they ask the question, what can I do? You know, what can I do to help? And what they're very often surprised to hear is that the number one thing that they can do to help their loved one is to help themselves, is to focus on their own recovery, is to really accept the fact that they too are in recovery, They that the addiction, the substance use has impacted them in ways in which a lot of the times they're not even aware because A lot of times it happens slowly over time and it's very subtle that the family members aren't even aware of the way in which they've been impacted and the changes in their own behavior that have resulted um, from their loved one's addiction. So that's first and foremost is focus on yourself, engage in your own recovery process, your own recovery program, because that is really the best thing that you can do to support your loved one. You know, Dr. KJ, would you say that most people, uh, most families that have a loved one that enters recovery really are unaware of that? So they really, you know, my my experience is, is, is seeing families go through the recovery process with a loved one. Most family members either come in confused or incredibly angry Right. Really. Or incredibly worried and kind of what I would call codependent, right? right. That they're going to take on and fight this fight for the person that is going through recovery. Do you think the awareness is there for most people, most families that are going through this process? No, especially uh, people that are new to, to the process, right? That, that this is something that has come to the forefront, that their loved one is really struggling with this addiction and they come into treatment and they're really um, uneducated to begin with, right? Because as much as we've evolved in terms of our understanding of addiction and how it impacts the brain and um, and, and the important um, aspects of recovery, 
family members still come in and have these old ideas about addiction and what it means. And they don't understand how it really happens and the impact to the brain. So one of the first things that I think is important for family members and helpful to family members is to become educated, to, um, to receive education about addiction as a disease and as a mental illness, because that's truly what it is, is the way in which the substances have impact the brain and then the resulting mental illness that occurs as a result of the impact to the brain. And then also that, ho that hope of, of um, full recovery, that this doesn't have to be who their loved one is, you know, forevermore. And, and a lot of people think in those terms, like, oh, my loved one is addicted, you know, they're an addict, they're an alcoholic, and this is like a, you know, forever sentence, so to speak. And that's not my view at all. That hasn't been my experience. I'm someone who has experienced an addiction myself. I have a loved one. Um, my husband's gone through it. And we also have a, a son who experienced an addiction to drugs. And I emphasize the word experience. It was an experience. It was an illness that we experienced and that we fully have fully recovered from. And, and there is that, you know, I think that piece that people forget is that not only can you recover from an addiction and it doesn't have to be this lifelong, um, you know, this lifelong long struggle, but you can really become better as a result of going through that experience. I've, I've become, you know, far better than I ever um, was before and my son and my husband as well. So, you know, giving that hope that this doesn't have to be this, you know, ongoing horrible thing yet at the same time, and this is a piece where some people don't like to talk about this, but I definitely like to put it out there and talk about it because it's a reality of the experience is that this is a chronically relapsing disorder. You know, this is something that is very, very difficult to recover from because of the ingrained neuropathways and the impact to the brain. And it takes a lot of work. And so the family members being able, and the individual themselves, being able to be uh, more gentle and compassionate and understanding when their loved one relapses, because it's really hard, rather than coming from that place of anger and disappointment that only serves to feed the addiction and actually make it stronger rather than helping the person. And, and that's something, you know, family members think I need to be harsh with my loved one. I need to, and, and there's a difference between setting healthy boundaries and being harsh and critical and angry and condemning and judgmental because all of those attitudes only serve to make the addiction stronger when we treat the individual that way. Yeah. And I think a lot of, you know, I, I have noticed that there's kind of two paths that happen. The person who is going through the immediate recovery and has identified that there's some sort of problem. Maybe they haven't even identified that there's some sort of problem. Their family's identified it and they're now willing to kind of look at it or go through some sort of treatment or recovery process. And then there's the family's path. And I usually see at the very beginning of that, um, there's a big question, what does this mean? 
and they're kind of filling in the story. Does this mean I was a, a bad mom, a bad dad, a bad uncle, a bad brother, a bad sister, right? This defining of it. And what does this mean for next Christmas? Does this mean that we can't have cocktails? Do we need to not go to the baseball game anymore, right? Like all of this stuff that really does not matter ends up coming up to the forefront. And, and I've seen a lot, which is very interesting, you know, if you're the first person in the family to get into recovery and to get sober, um, and there's other practicing addicts in the family, this triggers a lot of very intense emotions. Yes, absolutely. And what will commonly happen, and not to be surprised by this, what will commonly happen is when that one person in the family starts to recover, other people in the family may get worse before they get better because there's this resistance to, oh, you know, this, uh, you know, I don't almost, I, I don't really know what it is in terms of the trigger in the brain, but I know that in my experience, my son absolutely got worse as I got better. Um, and, and I've heard that, that that is a common experience with families where there's, you know, several people, if not a couple of people who are experiencing substance abuse, maybe not. And that's another thing too, is, is that defining line that's so hard to determine. And it's such a personal determination of, you know, when does substance abuse cross over into addiction? You know, when does it become this, um, this experience where you really have to change almost your entire, you know, you absolutely have to change your, your entire lifestyle in order to support the recovery process. And that I think is really challenging, especially if you're in, you're in a family where there are other people who are, you know, uh, who drink on a regular basis or use other drugs on a regular basis, and you're in that environment, it makes it really, really difficult. I can tell you from my own experience, I am from a large Irish Catholic family where everybody drinks and it's a culture. It's like a part of the ingrained culture of my family that that's what people do. It's also an ingrained culture in my family that people work really hard and they work hard and, and they play hard. And, and most people can, you know, can balance that for a period of time. But when I, you know, when I first started to recover, one of the biggest challenges for me was, you know, feeling like an outsider within my own family, because, you know, everybody else, their life just moves on, you know, they're like, I'm not going to, you know, um, stop drinking. And, and that's an expectation, too, that I think is important to clarify is, is the expectation of if I'm not living in the same household with someone, right? For me to have this expectation because I'm recovering and I'm not drinking that everybody else around me should, you know, modify their life to accommodate me is unrealistic. And it's not fair to like other people, right? So if yet, if I'm living in a household where people are actively drinking and using drugs, then that's something that is uh, definitely an issue and a challenge. And probably one of the things, the difficulties, the most difficult challenges I see 
within families like spouses and family members where one person is in treatment and they're going back into an environment where their spouse or other people within the household are actively, you know, drinking and or using drugs. And that, you know, is a huge uh, challenge for a lot of oh. people. I've, I've noticed that it's almost like a series of dominoes. When someone in a family goes into recovery, all of a sudden, every domino starts to go down. Right. So you, you'll, you'll have family members, you know, make claims. It's like, well, they didn't get that alcoholism from me. Right. You know, I'm just, you know, I can control my drinking, right? And then there's always this kind of infighting, it seems, with, with most people about things that really don't matter. And then I, I, I call it the born again syndrome uh, with people who are in, uh, uh, they are in recovery, people that get it right away and right. realize the solution, uh, you know, are going around trying to kind of baptize everybody else into it in the family. Right. It's not, then they're not really ready for it. And, and right. you know, and they're, and, and they're doing it at really inappropriate times like Christmas Eve or a New Year's party or someplace that it's just really not appropriate to right. to do that yeah absolutely i i've absolutely um observed that over the years with some people and whenever you know and recovery doesn't work that way at any you know any time that you're trying to impose you know what you want somebody else to do or what you believe they should you know do is going to create resistance within that person and and the other like flip side that i was thinking of as you were as you were talking about that and and all of these different experiences and um you know the way in which family members respond to things is that family members often um will feel like they uh, they might catch it, so to speak, right? Like, oh, I have to stay away from that person because I don't wanna, like, I don't wanna, you know, get that what they have or, um, or they, they're overly like um, cautious around the person saying, are you okay? Or, you know, um, or hiding things or just behaving in ways that makes it very uncomfortable for the person who's mm -hmm. trying to, recover. It's not about, I mean, of course you don't necessarily, when somebody's brand new to recovery, you don't want to be sitting there drinking, you know, a cocktail in front of them um, or anything like that. If it's not necessary, you know, there's family events where you, you know, you can't necessarily control what, and this is where you don't dictate, you don't say, oh, well, everybody shouldn't drink because I'm going to be at the party and, you know, and I'm recovering. Like that's, you know, that uh, there are ways uh, and recommendations that we make to help people get through situations like that with their family members. But family members will be, they'll start to act weird, you know, like, oh, let me hide this cocktail because if this person sees that I'm drinking, they might, you know, they walk on eggshells around people that makes it even more uncomfortable for the individual who's like, as if they like I said, as if they have the plague or they have something that, you know, could be caught by other people rather than just being supportive. But this is where education comes into play. And it's so, um, I think, critical for family members to know how to behave and how to, and what to expect, you know, what to expect in terms of how that person is going to, um, 
is going some of the symptoms that they're going to experience of the post-acute withdrawals and I think one of the um probably one of the um biggest struggles or or the most common mistakes I should say that people fall into is this belief that recovery happens quickly and that my loved one is going to treatment for 28 days and I've heard family members say this right they'll say to me They'll say, well, they better be fixed when they come home, you know, this better be cured or this, you know, they better be good, you know, fix them. You're going to fix them right in 28 days. And treatment is, is not recovery. It's treatment. And it's like going into the hospital and getting treated for uh, an illness or having a surgery you come out, I always use the um, analogy of a knee replacement, just because I have a lot of family members who have had knee replacements, my mom, my dad. And um, so when you go in and you have some sort of surgical procedure, or you get treated for something, you come out of the hospital and there's a cast or there's like the, the little knee um, stroller things that people go around on. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, but when you have a knee surgery, there's something, whether it's crutches or a wheelchair or a little, you know, the, the knee scooter, there's something that indicates to people that you are rehabilitating from an injury, right? So, you know, my dad had to go to physical therapy for almost a year for his knee to be able to get back to 100% where he could go out and, um, and be, you know, physically active. And addiction impacts the brain significantly, yet people have this, this you know, belief that my loved one's going to go to treatment for 28 days and they're going to come home and they're going to be good. And it's, you know, they're, and that's not the case, that it's the beginning of the rehabilitation process. And then they're going to need to go to physical, physical therapy, so to speak. They're going to need to go to meetings and, and participate in a recovery process that is going to help them to rehabilitate and their brain's going to be healing. And as their brain heals, you're, they're going to experience symptoms that's going to kind of mimic maybe their behavior when they were in active addiction, which is scary, right? Oh, did my, did my loved one relapse because they're acting very strange. They're moody and they're not usually moody. And these post-acute withdrawal symptoms are, are normal. They're, they're natural and they're actually good because it's a signal that your brain is healing. And so family members need to know this information and know that this is a journey that takes a long time to, to fully rehabilitate. And on average, average takes about 18 months. I don't think anyone gets by, so to speak, anyone um, recovers any quicker than a minimum of like a year for the brain to really heal. And of course, it's all based upon types of drugs, length of time that they, they used the substance and underlying health factors mm -hmm. as well. So, you know, family members being supportive of that and encouraging of that, I tell family members, to imagine their loved one with a bandage around their head, like for the next year, because that's what's going, that's what's happening. Their brain is rehabilitating. And I think the reason why a lot of people fail at recovery is because they don't allow themselves, they don't give themselves enough time. They don't give 
their brain enough time to heal. Absolutely. You know, we've had a lot of um, people on the show that are involved with recovery houses and, you know, they'll, they'll be the first to say that it's not a, you come here and we fix you situation. And in most cases, it's just a timeout and a detox. It's just a timeout. Oh yeah. You know, it's gotten so out of control that you can't really enter the recovery process on your own. Uh, so we're going to give you a timeout. We're going to medically make sure that you're okay so that you can then go work on your recovery if you choose to do that. Right. And there are so many people who just, you know, go to detox over and over and over again, and they use it like a, a drying out period. Oh, I'm just going to give my body a break for a little bit and get back to what they think is baseline when they're not even close. You know, they're, they're, they physically, and this is, and this is where people, you know, just fall back into denial or refuse to, you know, believe the, the truth, which is just because you're physically feeling better in the moment, you know, you've gotten through that detox, your body's feeling good. It's, it's a false sense of security. And it, and it's, um, you, you know, if we could only see the, the impact to the brain, which is why I know that there are treatment centers now who do that do brain scans and that literally show people like this is the impact to your brain. This is what your brain looks like because we can't see it. And so it's natural when we feel better and we look in the mirror and it's like, Oh, you know, I'm good. I look good. I'm feeling good to think we can just go right back to, you know, doing what we were doing and not, and ignoring the fact that we're, we're, you know, continuing to harm ourselves within, within the brain. You know, you have such an expertise at working with families that are going through this process. You know, what would you say about codependency in the number of cases that you see of people that are going into recovery, their Mm -hmm. families having serious codependent issues? Do you think that that is a common thread in in most experiences? Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yes. And and, and what happens with codependency, codependency is just so similar to the um, substance use disorder experience in terms of the progression, the way it can progress. We can start out with by being mildly codependent and as our loved one continues to struggle and they get worse, oftentimes family members will get worse and they'll progress in in their their own symptoms to the extent that family members themselves can develop mental illnesses, eating disorders, their own substance um, use disorders as a result of their own codependency. And and another element of that that is very, you know, um, characteristic, it's a characteristic that it that really mimics the characteristic of substance use disorder is the denial because I I've worked with family members who are so codependent, so codependent, and they'll sit there and they'll say, I'm not codependent. I'm not, you know, they don't have any awareness of it at all. And part of it is because they don't understand what codependency is Mm -hmm. and they, they get stuck on, the dependent part of the word. They, they're like, I'm not dependent, so I'm not a codependent. Whereas they don't understand that, 
you know, codependency, I, you know, I think of my own codependency because that was my first, that was my first addiction. And it's a behavior addiction. You get, you know, stuck in these patterns of behavior and ways in which you are responding to your loved one and their addiction. And you get like obsessed with and then addicted to managing their illness and managing, um, managing even their recovery. And, and people who experience substance use disorders themselves are often very codependent in their own behavior. So it's, you've got like a dual addiction going on. So it, you know, codependency, people who are codependent are actually some of the like strongest people that I've ever met because they're taking on the world, you know? And what happens as a result of that is they're, they're not, they're uh, denying their own needs. So, and it ha can happen so slowly over time where it's like, I'm, I'm helping, I'm doing, I'm managing. And then slowly I'm not taking care of me. Mm -hmm. I'm losing, um, you know, the things that I used to do for self-care. I'm not, doing anything that we lose ourselves completely in the, you know, attempt to try and help our loved ones. And it's so hard to, you know, turn the ship around, so to speak, like to turn people around and say, okay, listen, the best thing that you can do for yourself and your loved one is to start to take care of you, like mm -hmm. to start to get back to that self-care and allow your loved one to be responsible for themselves in their own recovery. And when you're, you know, it's all about the, the patterns of behavior and the neuropathways. When you've been doing that for, you know, a long time, years and years for some people, it's really hard, not impossible, but it's difficult to start to change um, and, and those patterns of behavior. And that was, for me, learning how to address my codependency and heal, start to heal my codependency, I think was instrumental in my son being able to recover. I think that if I hadn't let go of the need to control and manage and help um, him in ways that were hurting, that he may not, you know, he may not have made it. He may not have recovered. So that's what I mean by family members have a lot of influence and um, our own and, you know, family members, sometimes it's just really difficult to look at ourselves because it's, you know, the, the really the egregious, so to speak, behavior is com generally coming from the addicted person. So family member, you know, nobody wants to um, take responsibility, right? And it's not like I'm saying as a family member, you're responsible for, because I'm saying the exact opposite. I'm saying you're responsible for yourself and your own actions. And it's through looking at that, through looking at yourself and how you can start to change that you're really going to have the greatest impact on your loved one and their recovery. So I think I'm talking in circles, but yeah, well, Dr. KJ, if there are families, you know, j just in conclusion here, if there are families that are listening to this, if there are people that are listening to this and they have a family member that's in recovery and they're struggling right now, and they think that it's just, their life is just a mess. They feel that this is never going to get better. What would be something that you could give them a suggestion that you could give them or a ray of hope that things can get better and will get better. Yeah. Well, 
Um, there are three things that, that I recommend to family members. Um, and number one is to seek your own support, your own recovery, you know, accepting the fact that you need recovery. Um, and it's just as important for, for you to get your own recovery as a family member as it is for your loved one. And so you need that support, you need guidance, you need somebody who is going to help to, um, to guide you and give you information and help you to look at some patterns of behavior that may be hurting rather than helping. And then finally, it's, um, you know, the practicing of spiritual principles, which people get kind of stuck in, you know, equating that with religion. And that's not what I'm talking about at all. Although for some people, religion is a way in which they practice spiritual principles that gives them strength, that gives them power. So um, I would say the number one spiritual principle is self-compassion, because the more that you are able to be compassionate towards yourself and loving towards yourself and, um, you know, practicing self-care and taking care of yourself and getting stronger within yourself, then that is going to put you in a position to be able to offer that to your loved one and to everyone else around you too. So it's about you being in a place of strength so that no matter what happens, you're going to be able to handle that. So it's not about like, um, I mean, absolutely there, is, there are millions of people who have not only recovered, but are living their best lives, living lives that, that are better than um, than they would have been had they not experienced the, you know, the, the addiction. And that's the, the truth. I mean, nobody wants to, nobody wishes, you know, addiction upon themselves or anybody else for that matter. But the truth is, is that it's, um, in my experience and in others that I've worked with, it, it's, um, you know, given me strength and, and the ability to help others and, you know, had positive effects on my life that I never could have imagined. So, I mean, really, this is a this is really a great opportunity to make your family stronger. Yes, really. Absolutely. At the end of the day, right? This could be the path right. to actually make things better. My experience with families that have gone through this process is that if people actually work it and have some sort of effort, um, the bonds and the family structure is just so much better at the mm -hmm. end of this process. Yeah. And learning how to go from anger to compassion. Exactly. Learning how to get out of that negative mindset and start to focus on, on recovery and, and you know, a, a life in recovery rather than focusing on, you know, the, I think we have a tendency when we're in that mid, in the midst of that despair and that hopelessness is to get stuck, you know, to, and that's why it's so important to have a support group and other people that can give you that strength until you're able to start to cultivate that strength on, on your own. So Dr. KJ, where can, you have a lot of resources, where can they find out more about how families can help themselves, codependency, addiction, where can they find out more about you? Well, they can go to my website, which is, there are two ways to get there. It's uh, drkjfoster.org, which is drkjfoster.org. Then there's 
um, FR program for fostering resilience, frprogram.com. So that will take you to my website, which provides um, free recovery support meetings, free family training videos. I have a YouTube channel called Fostering Resilience that provides educational uh, resources, meditations, because um, mindfulness meditation is huge in terms of being able to build your um, recovery strength, your prefrontal cortex, and then um, also free recovery support meetings, which are open to both individuals and family members um, every day, seven days a week, 365 days a year via Zoom. And then I I'm going to be launching an app in about a month that is going to bring all of that to you in the palm of your hand. So, so if, you, if you're a family listening to this and you need help, there are some great resources right there for you. Thanks so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Keep the conversation going. Join Recovered Life, a community of like-minded people who are looking to live their best recovered lives. Membership is free, and you can apply at recoveredlife.us.